quick recap of, of what we've done so far. Two weeks ago in part one, we talked about the fact that the law is good. All right, the law is good. And then in uh, part two of the series last weekend, we looked at the tone and the spirit of the law. And we saw that the tone, the spirit of the Old Testament law, a lot of people think it's harsh, it's legalism, it's not legalism, it's not do's and don'ts, it's not harsh, it's love, right? And uh, we also looked at the fact that a lot of people think that the law is all about self-effort. And so as soon as someone starts preaching about the law, people just hear them saying self-effort, do's and don'ts, try harder. And we looked at the fact that the law itself does not teach that. The law has always been meant to be obeyed by faith. People having a relationship with God, they look in the law, they don't try to work it up on their own, they look in the law, they say, God, I want to do this, I'm committed to doing this, help me to do this, and they have a relationship with God. Okay, that's very important stuff. And, uh, and so then what we're going to talk about this weekend and next weekend is, I'm going to start to help you make sense of the various laws in the Old Testament. So we've talked about that the law is good, we've talked about the tone and the heart and spirit of the law, and in the last two weeks we're going to look at uh, many of the specific laws and help you to make sense of them because... Uh, obviously, as I know, uh, to our modern mindset, some of the laws in the Old Testament law, are, they seem uh, confusing, some of them seem bizarre, they seem weird, some of them seem harsh, violent, those sorts of things. And one of the things I want to remind you of right off the top of, uh, here is that this Old Testament law is 3,500 years old. So it's not surprising, really we should not be surprised that there are some things in here that don't make sense for our culture, okay? My challenge to any of you today would be to write something that will make sense to people 3,500 years ago in a totally different culture with a different language, okay? So we need to remember that the whole time. But uh, so we're going to start to look. What I'm going to do today, my main goal today is I want to give you a key for organizing and understanding the Old Testament laws in your head. See, most of us, when we think of the Old Testament law, we just have a schmozzle. We put them all into a bowl. And it's like all the leftovers. We don't know what to do with it. We just put everything in there. Reminds me of, I have an uncle. It's kind of a family joke, but he went to uh, one of my great aunt's places one time for pizza, and she was kind of more, you know, old school Mennonite. You don't waste stuff and different things like that, which is good. Uh, nothing against that, but anyway. But when she made a pizza, she wasn't making it to be a good food. She was making it to get rid of everything and just put it on top of a crust. And so he's eating this piece of pizza, and he stops on bite number two when he bites into raisins. And he said that was just too much. He couldn't do that. And, uh, and so, but that, I mean, you just have a schmalz, you don't, what is this? Is this a dessert? You've got raisins in different food groups. You've got to keep those separate, right? Okay? Bacon, that goes on pizza, right? But, but raisins not, okay? But it's a little bit the same with the law. People, many of us in our minds, it's very confusing because there's certain laws. We, we certainly know that they are good for today. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. But we, we just lump those laws in with all the rest. We have this schmalz and we don't know, okay, what is good and what is not? And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you uh, grid work, a key for organizing the different laws so that you can, as you're reading the Old Testament law, you're going to be able to say, uh, uh, you know, okay, this law needs to go over in here and this law needs to go in here. And by seeing where these different laws go, they're, it's going to start to fit in and you're going to start to understand what each of the laws means, okay? It's very important. That's my goal today. Now, I have a secondary goal that's kind of running under this whole thing and it's a heart goal. So in the mind, I want to show you how to understand the Old Testament law. But in the heart, I have an even bigger goal. And my goal today in this message is I want to defend the character of God. And I, I am, I'm really passionate about this. One of the biggest attacks against the Christian faith today from the atheists, that many of them, they're called the new atheists. And uh, what they, just to define that for you, it's basically people who, uh, atheists who write more than they think. But it's men like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. They write very popular books hating Christianity. And one of their biggest attacks on Christianity is they attack the God of the Old Testament. And they say he's immoral and he's violent. They call him all kinds of names. He's perverted. He's petty. He's harsh. And they've got all these attacks. Now the problem is a lot of Christians don't know how to answer it because they take lines and stories and passages out of this 3,500-year-old document, and they just put it into modern times, and they say, look how hideous this is. They have no idea about context. They have no idea about tone. They have no idea about how the different laws are organized and what they mean. And so many Christians are actually afraid. Many of us subconsciously, we wouldn't say consciously, but many of us subconsciously are embarrassed about the Old Testament. We're embarrassed about the God in the Old Testament, and we're embarrassed of some of the things that are in the Bible. And by the end of today, I want, you're going to, in fact, I basically promise you, I'm pretty sure it's going to work. You're going to leave here today, and you are not going to be embarrassed of a single thing in this Bible. 
and you're not going to be embarrassed about God. And I'm going to show you, because once you start putting this grid work in place, you're going to start to see that the very commandments, which in our society look harsh, are actually wonderful and good. They're even good today, okay? And I'm, I'm gonna, that's, that's, that's what I want to do today. So bow your heads and me, close your eyes, and, and we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord God, this is what I want to do today. I want to give you glory. I want to show everybody in this room here today how brilliant you are. I want to show them your justice and your genius and your mercy, Father. And I just want to lift you up. I want every person here today to go home knowing how amazing you are. And Jesus, further than that, Lord, I want us to have a confidence in your word here at Southland that we're going to be able to read your Old Testament law and we're going to know what it means. And Jesus, you said that life come, real life comes from feeding on every word from you and that includes the Old Testament words. And I want to bring understanding to the Old Testament so that we can feed on it and find life. And I thank you, God, for that, that you're going to help me to do that, that you're going to open up our ears here. I know that many of the people here today, they are hungry. They're hungry for more of you, and they're hungry for more of your word. And so I pray that you would bless that hunger, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pick up where I left off last week. Last week we talked about tone. I'm going to pick up there because it's going to open the door for us to get into a system for organizing the laws, all right? And, uh, and so last week, again, we talked about the fact that the, law, the heart of the law is love and not rules, and that the spirit of the law is, is uh, faith, not self-effort, okay? Now, I know that that is hard for many people to receive in our culture because we've been taught for so long that the law is harsh and it's legalistic. And so I also know that one of the, one of the objections that comes up immediately when I preach that the law is love, not rules, that the love is mercy, not not uh, uh, harshness, one of the objections, and I didn't have time to deal with it last week, but one of the objections that immediately comes to many people's uh, minds is this, but what about the law that says eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, right? Because that's a famous law in the Old Testament, and it's true. There is a law in the Old Testament that says you've got to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In fact, it's repeated in three places. It's in Exodus 21, it's in Leviticus 24, it's in Deuteronomy 19. I'm going to look at the Deuteronomy 19 one extensively in 10 or 15 minutes here. Okay? But people say, how can you say that the, that the law is, is love, that the law is forgiveness, that the law is faith and all these mercy and all these good things, when we clearly have a law here that teaches people to get even, that teaches people to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's not forgiving, that's not loving, right? And so what I want to show you here today is that we have massively misunderstood that law. Like I'm talking massively, night and day. We have looked at something that is light and we are reading it as darkness. And I'm going to show you a key to understanding that, those, those three passages, it's one law, but it's repeated three times. I'm going to show you the key to understanding that eye for an eye, tooth for tooth law. And when I'm done, you're going to love eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. You're going to love it. In fact, you're going to go out of here and you're going to call your MPs and your MLAs and you're going to say, we need eye for an eye and tooth for tooth here again. Okay? And you're laughing. Just let me prove it to you, okay? Now before I get there, i got to do one other thing as well, okay? Because I don't want you to think when I read you eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, I don't want you thinking that I'm just making it say what I want it to say. I don't want you to, to think, well, Chris is just, he's got, he's done this message series, he says the law is love, so he's got to make this law look loving, so he's going to change it to say what he wants to say. I don't want you thinking that, so before I even look at that law, I'm going to show you that the Old Testament law does not teach, clearly, 100%, you're going to be 100% sure, I'm going to show you without a shadow of a doubt that the Old Testament law does not teach you and me to take eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And then we're going to look at the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth passage, and we're going to have to find out what is it really saying, all right? So the first verse I want to go to here is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And uh, I know that in this series, I have probably shown many of you more of Leviticus than you've ever had in your life, times about 10, okay? And I hope you're starting to see that it is a good book, okay? Now this particular law here is a very important law in the Old Testament law. It's one of the central ones. It's one of the most important ones. Okay, if you read James chapter 2, you can mark that down. I don't have time to go there right now. If you read James chapter 2, he calls this verse, this law, he calls it the royal law. Okay, and Jesus quotes this verse, and so does Paul. Okay, this is a central law in the Old Testament uh, law. Okay, now let's see what it says about getting even. Okay, because again, people have this false contrast. They say the Old Testament is eye for an eye, and the New Testament is 
turn the other cheek. I'm sure you've heard that, right? The Old Testament is eye for an eye. This one's turn the other cheek. And I want to show you that that is completely false. The Old Testament does not teach eye for an eye in our individual relationships. So let's look at Leviticus 19.18, which is the royal law. You shall not take vengeance. There it is right there. As clear as can be. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right from the very beginning, it says it right here, the Old Testament law says it is a sin to get even. It is a sin to take revenge. It is a sin to take an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth from someone who hurts you, okay? So that's just right there, it's clear. Right from the very beginning, this is in the heart of the law, that God told the Israelites it's wrong. By the way, I want to show you something else in here that's amazing because I just, I just love God's laws, okay? And people have this idea, like all these laws in Leviticus, it's just about do's and don'ts, and God didn't care about the heart, or those laws don't do anything for the heart. I want you to notice the next thing after do not take vengeance. It doesn't just say you can't take actions of vengeance. It even says don't even bear a grudge. That's a heart thing. Right at the very beginning, when God gave the Israelites the law, he said, not only do I not want you getting even in your actions, I don't even want you getting even in your heart. You need to forgive. Forgiveness is in the Old Testament law, and it's in one of the central laws of the Old Testament law. This is what God has always wanted from people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, all right? Now, I want to show you this is all over. It's not just one place. This is, the, test, this is the, the, the testimony and the teaching of the whole Old Testament, okay? Proverbs 20, verse 22. Let's do a quick survey here of a number of, number of passages. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Again, this is Old Testament teaching. Do not say, I'm going to repay evil, okay? Now, there's a whole message in this verse, by the way. Um, but uh, w- one of the amazing things here is if you're here today and someone has hurt you, They've said something about you or done something to you, and and it was an injustice. One of the things I love about this, the reason you don't need to get back, the reason you don't need to take back eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is because you can wait for God and he'll take care of it. Isn't that good? He's a just God. The reason you don't get revenge is not because God's saying just live with the injustice. What he says is, "I'll I'll be the source of justice. You don't get it for yourself. I'll get justice for you. Wait for me. Okay, that's Old Testament. All right? More Old Testament. Proverbs 24, verse 28 to 29. Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Again, the Old Testament, over and over and over again. It's right through the whole law. It's right through the whole Old Testament. Do not get back. Do not repay. Okay? And two verses we looked at last week, I want to show them to you here briefly again. It's mercy, not eye for an eye in the Old Testament, okay? Let's look at Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require? What does the Lord require of people? Here it is, to act justly and to love mercy. Not revenge, not getting even, and to walk humbly with your God. And then there's also Hosea 6, verse 6. For I, and this is God speaking, desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. By the way, in this verse here, God is showing that there are different kinds of laws in the law. By the way, that's going to become important later in this message. There are preachers here today, and this is what they preach. They preach that all of the laws are just one. There's not different kinds of laws. They're all one. And the reason they want to preach that is because then they say, and look, the sacrificial ones don't hold anymore, therefore we can throw them all out. I don't have time to develop an answer to that here in this message, okay? But that's all in that paper online. The fact of the matter is that that is not biblical. And here in this verse and in many others, God says, I have certain laws that are more important to me than others, and the sacrifices are less important than the mercy righteousness commands. I want mercy. I want you to love one another. I want you to forgive one another. That's the most important thing to me. So God always had different kinds of laws. He had different priorities in the law. And that's why we can cancel out some of the less important ones and still have standing the the moral, important, universal ones, right? Now, there's another really cool thing I want to show you now, and that is this, because I said before, again, on this whole eye for an eye thing, people have this idea, Old Testament eye for an eye, Jesus cancels eye for an eye in the New Testament and says, turn the other cheek. What I want to show you is that, and and where they're getting that turn the other cheek from is Jesus' message on a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And people think, okay, Jesus is overturning the Old Testament. No, he isn't. He's doing the same thing he's doing in all the rest of Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, which is he's preaching the Old Testament. The Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus coming in with a whole new thing. The Sermon on the Mount is an entire message where Jesus is preaching the Old Testament. Read it. 
He goes through, you look, you read Matthew chapter 5, he goes through the different laws. He says, murder, and this is what murder means. It's even don't get angry. And then he says, uh, adultery, preaches against adultery, don't commit adultery, and here's what it means. It also means don't lust. And the whole Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus preaching the Old Testament law. And when he says, turn the other cheek, it's no different. He's preaching out of the Old Testament. Let me show you a couple of passages in the Old Testament. Turn the other cheek was already an ethic at work in God's laws and in the Old Testament and in Old Testament times. Look at this, Lamentations 3, 27 to 30. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Old Testament. And Isaiah was practicing turning the other cheek 700 years before Jesus was, uh, came here to earth in the flesh. And uh, Isaiah 50 verse 6 says this, Isaiah says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Okay? So what I've just shown you, I've just done, we've done a quick survey of the Old Testament here, and I've shown you that the Old Testament teaches against taking an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The whole Old Testament teaches, turn the other cheek, forgive, don't bear a grudge, and don't get even, okay? Very important. Now the question is, well, what on earth then do we do with these three passages where we've got this one law, take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, okay? And this is very important now because now we're going to start to get into the meat of this message and how we understand the different laws in the Old Testament. So let me give you a little background. The first thing you have to understand is that there are different kinds of laws in the universe, okay? Many different kinds of laws, okay? Now when we, what, the reason we have a lot of confusion with the Old Testament is when we read the Old Testament, we're only looking for one kind of law. We read everything as if this is right or wrong. God hates this, God loves this, okay? That's all we do. Because it's the Bible. And we don't, think about, we don't think about the context in which it was given. We don't think about the fact that it was given to a nation. We just think, this was written for individuals, and I need to know right or wrong. So why on the earth is, you know, this right or this wrong? And we wonder, why did God make some of these weird rules? Well, the first thing we have to realize is that there are more than just right or wrong laws in the Bible. And I mean, we know this to be true in our country here. We have, I mean, when you read your, uh, we have many laws in our country that aren't right or wrong laws and that we don't go to the Bible to find, right? We don't go to the Bible to find out what the speed limit is, right? We don't go to the Bible to find out what the tax laws of our country are. We don't go to the Bible to find out building code laws, okay? If we're going to build a deck or a house, right? See, we, are, we understand that there are many different kinds of laws in our country, and those are important laws, right? I mean, speed limits and building codes and, and farming regulations and all these rules, these are the rules that help a country like ours, Canada, to function. And they're important laws. Now, they're not the same as do not murder, do not commit adultery, some of these universal laws that, are, that show us what right and wrong, good and evil is, Right? And some of them, hopefully, some of these civil laws will be based on those moral laws, but they're not the same. These civil laws are kind of applications that help a country apply maybe some of these uh, laws into reality in our culture, but they're also just laws that help us to function, okay? So those are civil laws. We've got civil laws and moral laws. Now, here's the first thing I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you four different types of laws, actually, in the Old Testament today. But for now, let's just talk about two different kinds of laws. Here's the first thing you need to know. The Old Testament has civil laws, okay? And this is really important. This is super important because you don't read a civil law the same way you read a moral law, okay? Now, let me just give you an example of a civil law, okay? If we go to Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, here's a building code law. And if you didn't realize that they had building code laws in the Old Testament law, okay? This is a 3,500-year-old building code law, and here's what it says. When you build a house, a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that's like a fence or a railing, okay, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it, okay? Now, here's a good law. Now, uh, when we read this, okay, we all intuitively know, everyone here, we read this passage, we intuitively know somehow that you and I are not responsible to build a fence around a roof, right? I mean, we just, we just, we intuitively know that, but we don't know how we know that. It's just kind of confusing. And so we look at the Old Testament and we say, I don't know why I don't have to follow this one, but I have to follow a different one, okay? But we know that this is, we intuitively know we don't have to do this. I mean, if this is a moral law, just like do not murder or, uh, or you know, do not commit adultery, then we all need to go home this week and we all need to very quickly, so that God doesn't get angry at us, we need to put fences up around all of our rooms, right? 
But we know we don't have to do that, right? See, this is a law. God never intended for this to be an internal law. It's not like God in his character, somehow intrinsically in his character, there's something intrinsically evil about a house that doesn't have a fence around the roof, right? I mean, he, he is writing this law for a culture 3,500 years ago where they didn't have to worry about snow. So they built their houses with flat roofs. And, they would, and, and in that culture, they would use that, the roof of their house kind of like a second story. They would go up there to eat, and sometimes they would go up there to sleep, and they would go up there to hang out. And so God, because he loves people and he takes human life seriously, he said, I don't want people dying unnecessarily. I don't want unnecessary injuries and accidents. So one of the things I'm putting in the law right now is when you build a new house, you put a parapet, you put a fence and a railing around the edge, and it's going to save a lot of lives. Now, that's a good law, right? But you can see how it's taking a universal, now there's an underlying principle, right? The underlying principle is human life is precious. But it's taking that universal moral principle, human life is precious, and it's applying it in a civil context, in a particular culture, a particular climate, and a particular time. And I mean, nowadays it would make no sense. This wouldn't, if, if we tried to obey that law, we would miss its spirit because the spirit of it is to save people's lives. We don't go up on our roofs anymore, right? Most of us. Okay? And so, uh, and so that's, that's what this law is. Now, of course, as soon as I say that, as soon as I open up this door, that some of these laws were for a particular time and space, that makes some of you uneasy. Because now you're going to say, well, all of it's relative then, right? And you're wondering, well, now can we, we can just throw out tons of laws and all we have to say is that was for a particular uh, time and place. And you might think now that none of these laws are even relevant. Let me tell you something. This law here is still relevant. The application doesn't apply the same way in our culture, but the underlying principle does. So when you're reading across this and you are in your devotions, you come across Deuteronomy 22 verse 8, okay? And you're reading this. You don't just go by and say, well, I can just chuck that one because it doesn't apply anymore. I don't need to put a fence around my roof. You come across and you say, Lord, you are a good God. And you gave this law. Every one of these laws reveals a piece of his heart and reveals a piece of some eternal principle that always holds so when you come to this, you don't just chuck it out. You don't say, well, that doesn't apply to me and I don't need to pay attention to it. You meditate and you say, Lord, what does this mean for me today? I know that this principle is built on the, on the sacredness of human life and the importance of human life. And so you meditate and you say, God, show me, how do I live this out? And there's many ways, God, I mean, just as I was meditating on this verse this week, God showed me many different ways where God can work in our hearts. But I mean, just one, just to give you an example of what this can look like, if you're here today and you're a farmer or a business owner or, uh, or a factory owner or something like that, when you come across a verse like this, this is incredibly relevant to you. You've got people working for you. And God says, you need to take every reasonable precaution you can to save the people working for you or visiting you from being injured or being killed. Now, this isn't a guilt trip if, if you're here today and you own a farm or something and someone once got injured, you know, or whatever. We're not going to stop every injury that's ever going to happen. But you meditate on this and you say, this is, this is what it means to be a godly person. These are things that are important to God. That's why he wrote them down. And so you want to please him. You say, you meditate, you say, Lord, how, how, can, I, how can I value human life more? How can I make, how can I bless the, my employees more? How can I keep them even safer? How can I make them even healthier? And you pray prayers like that, and you know what God says? I love you. See, this is what matters to him. This is what it means to love God, is to take his commandments, meditate on them, ask him to help us to know how to apply them, and then ask him to empower us to apply them. That's what it means to love God. Loving God is not, we've just gotten this idea where loving God is a fuzzy feeling or you cry during worship. Those are wonderful times. You know, when God, when you get emotions or you have good feelings about God, you thank God for those times. You go, yes, thank you for that feeling, Lord. That was wonderful. But loving God isn't a feeling. Loving God is looking at commands like this and saying, this is what matters to you. Help me to apply it to my life. And you begin to, you meditate on this for a bit of time, confess where you're going wrong and start to do it right. And God says, I am pleased. Look at this. 1 John chapter 5. All right. 1 John 5 verses 2 to 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Look what it says next. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. I mean, the Old Testament law, he's talking about the commandments. 
This is love for God. I mean, we, we're ignoring the Old Testament law. We are embarrassed about the Old Testament law. John says, love for God is, we keep his commandments. He wrote them down for a reason. These are the things he loves and cares about. You start caring about them and doing them, and that's what love is. With his help, all in relationship with him. By the way, I love the last line. I wish God would bring the Apostle John back from the dead and he could preach this because we have all these preachers going, the law is burdensome in death. And look what he says. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Okay? And you say, well, what does this have to do with the eye for an eye law? Okay, well, let's go back there. Okay? Eye for an eye law. We've got two different types of laws. Now, here's the thing about civil laws. Some civil laws, like the fence around the roof law, are laws that we can apply as individuals, Right? And, but there's other civil laws that don't apply to individual people at all. Some civil laws are meant to apply to government bodies or, and, and how they function and stuff. It, it doesn't make sense for how they would apply. An individual couldn't apply them. They're for, a, they're for uh, an organization of some kind. Okay? For example, again, if we look at Canada, if you look at our criminal code, our criminal code has two different types of laws in it. Okay? One type of laws is the laws that apply to us as individuals, and they're the laws that tell us what we can't do, okay? So don't murder, don't steal, don't evade taxes, all those sorts of things. Those are laws that you and me can apply in our day-to-day -day lives. So it's my responsibility not to murder people and to pay my taxes and to do those things, right? Now, there is a second half of that criminal code which doesn't apply to me. It's for the court system, Okay? This set of laws tells the court system how to give me a fair trial if I get accused of breaking one of these. And this set of laws over here also tells the court system what sentence to give to me if I break one of these laws. But, the, but this set of laws over here does not apply to me. It applies to the courts. You know, we don't get up in the morning and read sentencing laws and try to apply those to our lives. It's like five years for second-degree manslaughter. Oh, that's good. And you try to apply it to your life. You can't apply it to your life. It doesn't apply to you. It applies to the courts. It applies to the judges. You are responsible to do this, and he's responsible to do this to you if you don't do this. Okay? I have just now explained to you the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth law. See, here's the thing about the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth law. The eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth law was never given to individuals to do. It was given to the Jewish court system of what you do to criminals. And I'm going to read it to you now in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 19. And I'm, I just can't believe that Western civilization has missed this because we've go, been going around saying that the Old Testament law is about eye for an eye. It is not. It never was. I just showed you that the Old Testament law clearly teaches individuals never take revenge. The eye for an eye law was only for judges and the Jewish court system. And by the way, then I'm going to show you after that because I've been telling you that 100% of the law is about love and 100% of the law is about mercy. If you apply eye for an eye in individual relationships, then it's a harsh law. Getting even is harsh. But if you apply that same law in a court setting, it's merciful because it keeps criminals from being overpunished. Eye for an eye, not head for an eye, right? I'm going to show you that, but let me first prove to you that this law is and always has been for a court, not for people. We don't have to be embarrassed about this law. 19 verse 15, a single witness, notice the court language, witness, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime. Look at all the legal talk here. This is clearly for a court. But because we've believed this lie that all the laws are just one big mush and we haven't separated them, we just read it as if it's for people. It isn't. It's clearly for a court. Or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, I want to stop here for just a minute because this is an amazing law. Because already here, 3,500 years ago, God had written into the law how to give someone a fair trial. This is thousands of years before anyone was thinking about how to have a fair, uh, give people a fair trial. This is in a day and age nobody thought about fair in trial. Powerful people oppressed weak people. And God wrote into the law 3,500 years ago, here's how you get a fair trial. You can't just get someone with one witness. You've got to have at least two or three witnesses to a crime before you can convict someone. I mean, isn't that wonderful? That's amazing. And it's ancient, okay? Let's keep going here. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, now look at this, look at the court uh, language again, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges. There it is, it's clear. And the judges who are in office in those days. 
The judges shall inquire diligently, and if, the and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. By the way, may I just stop there? Look at the beautiful symmetry and justice here. God says, here's how we're going to get rid of false witnesses and, and you know, raw, you know, false lawsuits and all this kind of stuff, people trying to get each other in trouble and use the court system to hurt people. He said, if a person comes into court and lies in order to get another person in trouble, here's how we'll deal with it. We'll put the same trouble they were trying to get on someone else, we'll put it on their own head. I mean, that is beautiful. Can you imagine if we applied that in our justice system today? You'd have a lot less lying the symmetry of it. Look at this. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And look at this. And the rest shall hear and fear. It even rhymes in the English. It's so good, okay? <laughs> and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. This is for the judges and the court systems, not for individual people. The Old Testament does not teach people to get even. It is a loving, merciful, good law. And the thing is, like I said before, when you take this out of an individual setting where it's harsh and you put it in a court, it's actually wonderful. Because now some hungry kid steals a loaf of bread. You don't chop off his hand. You don't hang him. You don't throw him in, into uh, prison for five years. You make him pay back loaves of bread. That's what eye for an eye is. Cow for a cow. You steal a cow, you don't go to prison for 25 years. You pay back cows, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's, I mean, it's just good, isn't it? The punishment fits the crime, 3,500 years old. We've got penal codes now that are just hundreds and hundreds of pages, and God could just write the whole thing down like this, and it's just, and it's fair, and it's merciful. And the punishment is proportional. Look at this, Exodus 22 kind of expands on this law and shows how it works in the real world with some real world applications. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox. I mean, again, look at the justice. He steals one, he gives back five. The victim gets justice. Woohoo, I've got five cows, right? The criminal gets punished, but he doesn't lose a big chunk of his life and it's gone. He pays it back, he learns his lesson, there's restitution between the two. Let's keep going. It's beautiful. And four sheep for a sheep. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns, so that's the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field that's consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. It's just so fair and right. Eye for an eye is not harsh. It is wonderful, beautiful, proportional. Okay? Now, I can see in your eyes that some of you aren't blo as blown away as you need to be by God's amazingness. <laughs> I can see it. You're kind of just sitting there. It's a little dull. Okay? I need to, let's compare this to some of the other justice systems around the world. Let's compare it to some of the modern ones because this thing's 3,500 years old. I don't even need to compare it to the other countries 3,500 years ago. It makes them look hellish. But this is 3,500 years old and it rocks any kind of justice system we have in the world today. Rocks it. Okay, let's, let's look at a couple. Let's do some comparisons here. Let's look at the Muslim world, first of all. There's about a you know, billion plus people living in Muslim countries right now. If you live in a Muslim country where they have Sharia law and you, your child steals a piece of fruit, they're going to come back with their hand off. A woman in a Muslim country, you know, uh, has a, a part of her body showing that she shouldn't, like her wrist. Horrible, hey? For a woman to show her wrist or her ankle. By the way, I'm being sarcastic. But anyway, so a woman shows something she shouldn't under, under the Quranic law, and she can be whipped or beaten. Okay, is that proportional? Stonings, beheadings for all kinds of laws, is that proportional? 3,500 years ago, the ancient world, God gave them amazingly fair, merciful justice system. Okay, you say, okay, well, the Muslim world, okay, fine. Okay, so let's, let's look at some of the more, you know, civilized, as we would call them, cultures, okay? Let's look at the British Empire of the 1700s and 1800s, okay? They, were, they prided themselves on being civilized. One of the most civilized empires that ever existed, okay? Uh, in the British Empire of the 1700s and 1800s, they had the death penalty for 220 different offenses. This is a civilized country, okay? And those offenses for which you could get the death penalty included a pickpocketing, burglary, and even spending a month in the presence of gypsies, okay? 
Is that good or is that good? Hey, who wants to live there? 3,500 years ago, eye for an eye. You don't kill people for stuff like that. Okay, let's bring it even closer. Let's look at Canada and the U.S., okay? Let's compare it here at home, all right? And let me just run through my list of caveats first because I know I'm going to offend someone now in the next couple minutes, all right? First of all, you know, if you're a a jail guard here or something, I'm so glad we can employ you, okay? Uh, Second of all, I'm not against jails, okay? Not against. It's better to do something with criminals than nothing. Third of all, we need to lock up dangerous people. Okay? We need dangerous offenders and sex offenders and violent offenders and some of these people that are just re- repeat offenders. We need to lock them up and keep people safe. I've got three little kids too. I don't want these people out on the streets. I'm not against jails. Okay? But what I'm just showing here, let's just do a comparison between justice systems here. Okay? And I know that in many areas, our justice system is far too lenient on criminals. But then in other areas, it's just, it's like, it doesn't fit the crime. And one of the reasons is that we have, our answer to everything is jail. Okay, so do not murder jail. Well, good, okay, that's dangerous. Jail, but, you know, insider trading, fraud, stealing, jail. Everything's jail. Jail, jail, jail. You commit a crime, if we're going to punish you, it's going to be jail. Now think about that for a minute. Someone steals something from someone, Now you put them in jail for five years or ten years. There's, there's places in the States right now, in California, they've got this three strikes law. A guy went to prison recently for 25 years because it was his third strike. He stole a golf bag. Anyway, is that proportional? I mean, eye for an eye, doesn't that sound like heaven to someone like that right now? Eye for an eye sounds amazing. That's not harsh. So anyway, you put people in jail. Now think about this. So your victim, what happens to your victim? Someone steals something. Now you put this person in prison for 10 years. This person doesn't get justice. They don't get restitution. This person costs us tens of thousands of dollars every year. And when they come out, you've just put them in a population with a bunch of horrible people. They come out more warped than they went in. So you don't get justice, you don't get restitution, you don't get any of those things, and I don't have all the answers. I don't know how to fix it other than for Jesus just to come back and give us good laws and for us to get on our faces and pray before God. I'm not saying that I have a better way right now. I'm just comparing it to something that's 3,500 years old, and that one kicks its butt. Sorry, I don't know why I said that wasn't in the, I just got carried away there, but it's just, (laughs) it's just so good. And again, it's not hundreds of pages long. It's this long and a few little excerpts. You can put the whole penal code on a couple of pages. That's fair and just and merciful. Okay? But do you see how the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law is a really good law? It's excellent. Now, the key to understanding it is understanding that it's, there's different kinds of laws. You can't read it the same way as do not murder. This one is for all of us as individuals at all times in all cultures. This is for the Jewish court system. Okay? Now that principle is going to help us understand all kinds of other potentially confusing and harsh and bizarre laws in the Old Testament. Because there's actually four different types. And you can't read them the same way. And once you know what the four different types are, it's going to massively help you. Because as you read in the Old Testament, you're going to be able to fit them in and you're going to go, okay, I know that one I don't have to do, but I know what I can learn from it. And that one I don't have to do, but I know what I can learn from it. And that one I need to adapt. And this one is for me every day. And it's all in how you organize these things, right? This very... Uh, very important. And uh, I also want to give you a little bit of context here because in order to understand these four different types of laws, you have to understand the context in which they were given. Okay? And we rarely think about context. We just, we, we, we just live now and we're just steeped in our own world and our own culture and then we take the Bible and we try to fit it in there and you can't fit it in that easily. And so think about the context in which the law was given. Why did God have, have to give the Israelites the law? You ever think about that? Why? Why did they need all these laws so bad? Okay? Well, let me explain it to you. Okay? When God uh, took the Israelites out of Egypt, he was birthing a brand new nation out of nothing. He was birthing a brand new nation out of nothing. Okay? Israel had never been a country before. This is, it's brand new. There, there had never been a geographical spot on a map that said Israel. They didn't have a flag. They didn't have a national anthem. They didn't have a history. They didn't have an identity. Think of how important it is as people, our identity, where we live and where we come from and our country. Think about that. I mean, we have uh, good friends in our cell group, and they're from Switzerland, okay? And they're awesome. And, and being Swiss 
is a part of their identity, and there's certain things that go with that. And you talk to them about Switzerland, and oh man, they just will tell you about the beauty of the Alps, and they just have this heart connection to their homeland. They'll tell you about the engineering feats of Swiss people and tunnels under mountains and all that stuff. And they have there's a history there, there's stories, there's a culture. And that's part of who they are is being Swiss. And it's the same for Italians and French people. There's an identity of who you are, certain holidays and festivals and cultural things and foods that are part of who you are because you are part of that country, okay? We here in Canada, we have the same thing. You know, people say that Canadians aren't proud of their country. I know that we're proud of our country. We're just proud in a different way sometimes, but we're proud. I mean, I went to, uh, a number of years ago, I went to Israel with a few friends. First thing we did was so Canadian flags on our backpacks. When I was in Korea, I would brag to people because I, I would say to people in Korea, I mean, you have no idea how big that country is. Your country is little and I love your country, but our country is so big. There's mountains and prairies and great lakes and all of this is part of being Canadian. And, and there's, there's hockey, right? That, that's part of it. <laughs> I mean, let, let me just, I'm going to have to rabbit trail here for just a second, okay? <laughs> I, don't, I don't follow hockey at all. Don't watch it. Don't follow it. Don't care to follow it. And, and, I mean, you can just look at me, and I would really stink at playing it, okay? But I'm Canadian, and every four years when the Olympics comes on, I become a rabid hockey fan for Team Canada. Rabid. Okay? So in the last Olympics, you know, in the dying minutes of the, of the third period there in that gold medal game when the Americans scored to tie up the game, I mean, you haven't seen gnashing of teeth like what was happening in my parents' basement, okay? <laughs> Physically angry, Right? And then Sidney Crosby, and you all know where you were, right? And Sidney Crosby scores that goal, and we're dancing. We're just about crying. We're so happy, and we're repeated calls for Crosby, Prime Minister of Canada, whatever he wants, just <laughs> give it to him. We love him, right? Because that's, why? Why do we care? It's, just, it's because that's part of who we are, right? You can beat us at basketball and baseball and soccer. We don't care, but you can't beat us at that. It's like a moral affront, right? See, there's an identity there. Okay, now think about this. Israel is being birthed out of nothing. They have no identity. It's a blank slate. No festivals, no religion even. They have nothing when they're in Egypt. Now God is going to birth this brand new nation, which is a blank slate. They've got nothing written on there. And he's going to put them in the midst of the wolves, a whole bunch of wicked nations who have well-established cultures and festivals and religions and habits. Now, what's going to happen when you put a blank slate out here in the midst of the wolves? That blank slate's just going to absorb everything around it. And so God had to give the Israelites, they would never have survived. They would never have survived. So God had to give them four types of laws to help them survive. See, we read our Bibles as individualists in the, in the 21st century. Just tell me what's right and wrong today. Boy, this is hard to understand. This thing was given 3,500 years ago to a blank slate and had to have more than right and wrong on there. It had to help them survive as a nation. Okay? So four types of laws. Let's, let's go through what the four types of laws are. And the first two we've already talked about, but we'll just go through them again anyway. First thing God had to give the Israelites was he had to give them a list of what is right and what is wrong. Okay? He had to give them a list of what is right and wrong. Otherwise, how are they going to know what's right or wrong? Think about this. When, when a nation, when the individuals in a nation cease to know what is right or wrong, that nation crumbles. We're watching it happen right now with Western civilization. I mean, it doesn't matter how much wealth and power. You look at America, you look at Canada, and all the wealth and the rich history we have. And the power, the economic power, and for the Americans, the military power, and the whole thing, we're watching it begin to implode now. Why? One of the main reasons is because morality among individuals is going down, and the nation can't hold up. And so one of the first things God had to give those Israelites was he had to give them a list of what is right and what is wrong. Now, I want you to think about this now. Because up to that point in history, nobody had ever gotten a list like that before. Think of how dark the world was. Think of how dark the world was in that time. No one had ever made a list. God had never given anyone a list that said, this is right and this is wrong, and written it down to teach people. And so Israel is being birthed into this place, into a world that doesn't know what right or wrong is. You know, this past, year, this past week, sorry, a good friend of mine here from the church, uh, Len Hart, uh, sent me a message. He, he's another guy. He just loves the law. And he's been teaching and studying it for years as well. And he sent me a message he had written a number of years ago about the law. And, and it was a great message. But in there, 
he had a prayer. Okay, and I'm going to read it to you in just a moment. He had a prayer that archaeologists found in an ancient Syrian king's library. And I read this prayer. It's one of the saddest things I've ever read in my life. It literally went to my heart. And my first thought as I was reading this, I was halfway through, and I said, God, I feel so sorry for all the people who lived before you gave Israel the law. And in this prayer, what you're going to see is, it's a prayer, now we don't know who wrote it. It was in the king's library, but that doesn't mean the king wrote it. Someone else wrote it. Um, but it's a prayer from this ancient person, and what the, it's a prayer to an unknown God begging for forgiveness for sins he doesn't know if he's com- committed or not. And I want you to think, God is birthing this nation Israel into a world that doesn't know what right or wrong is. Look at, look at this prayer. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted toward me. May the God who is not known be quieted toward me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted toward me. You don't even know God or goddess. O goddess whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. The transgressions that I have committed, indeed, I do not know. The sin that I have done, I do not know. The forbidden thing that I have eaten, I do not know. The prohibited place on which I have set my foot, I do not know. Man is dumb, he knows nothing. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he doesn't even know. Is that not the saddest thing? God, God gave human beings a conscience. And so we all know that there is such a thing as right or wrong, but without the law, we can't train that conscience. And so people, millions of people, the world was full of people who had this guilt and they were living in sin and they were dying because of it. It was horrible, but they didn't know who God was. They didn't know what they were doing wrong. They didn't know how to get forgiveness. And God, when God gave Israel the law, I mean, that was one of the most beautiful things ever. Now the world knew who God was. They knew what he wanted. They knew what was right and wrong. And they knew where to go for forgiveness. This is why I can't stand it when people say the law is harsh and burdensome and, legal, and legalistic. That is a, that's an affront to God's character. The law is one of the best gifts God ever gave the world. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the best ones, and right after that is the law. Because it shows us what pleases God and what doesn't. So that was one thing that God needed to give the Israelites was a, a list of things, what is right and wrong. Second thing, as we've also talked about, is he had to give them civil laws. Okay? It wasn't enough just to tell them what right or wrong is. This is a brand new country. They've never had a king before. They've never had laws. How, do you, how, do you, how does property get sold? Who gets what land? What happens if someone dies accidentally? It, all these things. God's got to organize them as a country. So he has to give them those too. Right? And so you'll find all kinds of laws in, in the Old Testament. Think about this too. The Israelites had never been in the country that God was bringing them to. They didn't know the climate. God had to give them laws for farming and what kind of crops and how do you plant them and what do you eat and what kind of animals should you keep. He has to give them all of that. And now in our modern days, we say, what a weird God. Like, why does he care what they eat? Why does he care what I eat? And we accuse him of being petty and bizarre. And he's, this is for the survival of a nation. He's showing them how to function as a country. So there's health and sanitation laws and all kinds of stuff that are 3,500 years old that might seem weird to our modern sensibilities, but God has given it to them, this baby country, for their survival. He's given them a start. I mean, did you know that there's, there's even welfare laws in the Old Testament? Uh, I don't have time to go there right now, but Leviticus 23, 22, you can look it up. God gave the Israelites laws for how you're going to take care of poor people. It's all written in the Old Testament law. He's a good God. And so what he said is, this is how we're going to take care of poor people in this society. He said, we are going to take care of, this is, this is, you are my people, you are going to take care of poor people. So he said, here's how you're going to do it. All you farmers are not going to harvest your crops or your orchards to the edge of the field. You're, going to, you're not going to go right to the edge, you're going to save a bit. And you're also not going to go over your fields a second time. Whatever you missed the first time, you've got to leave it. And then all the poor people who live around you can come into your fields and they can pick what's left. They can pick what's on the edges, they can pick what you missed the first time. That's how we're going to take care of poor people. Now, isn't that a good law? Now, again, you have to understand that it's a civil law because if you read them all as one and you read that as the same as do not murder, then all of our farmers today have to not combine to the edge of their field, right? But that isn't what it is. God's giving this to them for them in their culture. Now, it's based on a universal moral law, which is take care of poor people. But if we tried to follow that law exactly today, it would actually break the spirit of the law because we wouldn't take care of poor people if we did that. I mean, think about it. If we tried to do that today, not, it wouldn't help 
poor people because, first of all, most of us live in cities and towns. So, and, and the farms are usually really huge farms and they're miles at a town. So now poor people would have to go out, you know, walk, they walk out 10 miles. And then we don't even have the right crops to feed them because they walk out 10 miles, they pick a bunch of canola and then, well, this will be a good supper, right? <laughs> or soybeans or something, right? And what's a poor person going to do if they get a bag full of wheat? Like, what are they even going to do with it? See, it wouldn't work in our culture. The spirit of the law, the universal principle is, is take care of the poor. But this is a civil law for their situation. This is how we do it. Now, it's still relevant to us today because there's many things we can learn from that law. I mean, there's dozens of things. I just meditated briefly this week. I, I said, okay, God, I know that there's, this, there's an underlying moral principle here. What can we learn from this? Well, there's lots of things. First of all, the first thing we need to learn is that society needs to take care of poor people. Yeah. Second of all, it's going to cost us something. Yeah. Third of all, and this one's good too, helping out poor people doesn't mean giving them handouts. Where possible, it's okay for them to work for their food, right? Because God didn't say to the farmer, you pick it and give it to them. He said, leave it and they can come and get it. Now, aren't those all amazing good principles? Yeah. Some of you didn't like that last one. Whatever, it's in the Bible, okay? <laughs> Complain to God, I'm not embarrassed about it. Let's move to the next one, civil laws. Moral laws, civil laws. There's a third kind of law that God had to give the Israelites, and this is where some of the weird ones come from, Okay? This is where some of the bizarre ones come from, and that is the separation laws. God had to give the Israelites separation laws. Here's what I mean. Again, I talked about it before. The Israelites are coming out of Egypt a blank slate. You put them out here with the wolves, they're just going to absorb everything they have. Now, the whole purpose of God birthing this new nation, he wasn't just birthing a new nation to have another country. God didn't wake up one morning and go, we don't have enough countries on this map. Let's have another one. Let's have Israel, okay? No. The whole world is living in darkness, they don't know right from wrong. They don't know who God is. So God says, here's how I'm going to tell them. I'm going to birth a brand new nation that's never existed before, and I'm going to give them my laws, and I'm going to set them on a hill, and they're going to be a light on the hill for all the world to see. It's not that God loves the Jewish people more than everyone else, but his plan was for them to be the light to the Gentile world. And here they would live with these righteous laws, worshiping a righteous God, and the whole world would look at them and go, wow. I want that God, and I want those laws. So that's the whole reason God was birthing them out. But they're birthing out as a baby nation. Now, if you have little kids, there are certain places you won't send your little kids that, you know, when they're older and grown up, if you want to go there and you want to evangelize your friends or whatever, that's okay. But when they're kids, you can't be exposed to that because they're a blank slate. They're, they're not going to help people there. They're going to absorb, right? Well, here we've got this baby nation, and God simply cannot have. The whole purpose is for them to be different. The whole purpose is for them to stand out and be a light for the nations. They can't be a multicultural society, not for, this, not for this situation. So God says, I can't, and again, let me just say this too, because now, now I gotta, as soon as I say multicultural, now I'm touching on a Canadian thing, right? I'm not against multiculturalism. Love immigrants. Love them in this church. We have many of them here. Love them in this country. They make our country better. And it works. But 3,500 years ago, for the purpose God was birthing Israel, multiculturalism doesn't work. They have to be different. So God says, we've got to put some rules. And it's not that any of these rules are intrinsically in and of themselves good or bad. It's not like God you know, hates this or loves that. It's fences. It's just a fence so that you are separate. Because that's my purpose for you. Okay? Very important. Now, so he doesn't want lots of immigration where people are coming into Israel and then, and then bringing their customs with them, right? Because, I mean, why do people come to Canada? Well, it, they like it here, and it's relatively easy. I mean, we have someone on staff here, Martin Gunter. He just wrote a citizen test the other day. People come here, they love the country, we love them. You're a good person, and you work hard, and then you, can, you write a test to become a citizen. It's easy. Lots of people immigrate here. God says, I, you know what, that's not going to work for Israel because I need them to be different. I don't want people bringing their cultures in here and darkening it. So he gives separation laws. For example, let me show you one of the main ones, circumcision. Okay? You didn't know you were going to come here today and meditate on circumcision, but let's meditate on it for a minute or two. Okay? One of the primary reasons for circumcision was separateness. God said, I don't want all kinds of people coming in and bringing their culture with them. So here's one thing that's going to stop a whole bunch of them. Okay? It's going to stop a whole bunch of them, right? If you want, because God, never mind. He said, if, if a foreigner wants to come in and join himself to me and follow me and I'll be his God, they can do it. 
But in order to do it, you've got to be fully committed, right? No anesthetic in those days, no hospitals, no modern equipment. You're going to have to be ready to leave everything behind, go through some serious pain in order to become a Jewish man. And so the desire for immigration went woo way down, right on that one. Now, Paul later in the, Old, in the New Testament overturns that law. He says, circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't matter, but obeying the commandments of God. In other words, that commandment was for a certain time to keep Israel separate. That one doesn't matter because that, there was a purpose for it, but it's not like God intrinsically is big on, and this is where atheists attack circumcision too. They say, well, God's masochistic. It's not that God intrinsically likes circumcision or doesn't like uncircumcision. No, it was purely a fence law. We don't need to worry about it now. Okay, he brought that law down with Jesus. Jews and Gentiles going, going to him, right? That's really important. And of course, there's other separation laws as well. And now I really believe that tattoos is one of them. Okay? And, uh, and so I'm not recommending here today that people, and please do not hear me, okay? And when I say this, some of you are going to say, Chris told me to get a tattoo, and you're going to go tell your mom or whatever, okay? No, I didn't. I think, you know, well, I should just be careful what I say all around you. I have to be very delicate because some of you are here with tattoos and some of you are very big. But uh, <laughs> I'm not saying you should get a tattoo. I'm just saying, is this a moral law? It is, does God just intrinsically hate tattoos? He said, don't get a tattoo. That's what it says in Leviticus. Well, if you read elsewhere in the scripture, you'll find that in Isaiah it says that when Jesus returns, some of the Jewish people are going to get tattoos on their hands. Well, why would they do something that was immoral, Right? Well, the, the thing is, tattoos aren't intrinsically bad, okay? I, I, there are places and times, and we'll see it when Jesus comes back. Some of them will get a good tattoo. Uh, it'll have Jesus on their hand or something. I don't know, but it'll mark them as being people who love Jesus. So a tattoo is not in and of itself wrong. We also know that God marked Cain. That's a tattoo, okay? So it's not that a tattoo, it's a separation law. What was happening was in those days, Lots of people were, the, the, the religions, pagan religions, their tattoos was a big part of that pagan religion. And God said, fence law. I don't want you doing anything that might pull you into that kind of practice. Your worship of me is going to be totally different than theirs. Now again, there's an underlying principle there, isn't it? Isn't there? I mean, if you're getting a tattoo that has some kind of significance that isn't good, it's wrong. If you're doing it to get accepted by a group that's not good, it's wrong. Okay, if you're doing it to rebel, it's wrong. All I'm saying is, it's just, it's not that it's, it's not that there's no possible tattoo that would ever be good. Okay? It was a separation law to keep them from doing, from copying the practices of the nations around them. And there's lots of other laws like that, and we'll look at some of them in more detail next week as well. Okay? But once you start to see these different kinds of laws, they start to make sense. Oh, God is a good God, right? He's not capricious. It's not arbitrary. It's not random. It's not harsh. And the last kind of laws are the religious laws, the ceremonial laws. These are, these are kind of more obvious, a lot of the sacrificial laws. And these were laws so that the Israelites, this is what they did for, for, to get atonement. It wasn't quite forgiveness. We had to all wait for Jesus in order to have forgiveness. But this was in the meantime before Jesus died. And the sacrificial laws, the ceremonial laws, were all supposed, and I'm going to show you more about this next week, but they were all supposed to point people towards Jesus. And lots of the weird, laws in the, Old, the weird laws in the Old Testament are about blood. There's lots of blood laws. Um, and you'll, you'll read through it. And I'll just say it because it's in Leviticus. And if you're reading there this summer, you're going to find it. But you're going to run across all kinds of laws about menstruation and stuff like that. And you go, why does God, and clean and unclean, and why is he talking about this gross stuff? And why? And the reason is because God was trying to teach the Israelites about the importance of blood. He was setting them up for Jesus to come back and save us. All of the ceremonial laws were picture laws that were setting the world up for Jesus. And so again, it's not like nowadays, it's not like people, say, people are attacking the Old Testament and some of the blood laws are saying, well, God didn't like women. And God was always calling them unclean because of things that were happening with blood and different things. And that's nothing like what it was. He was showing them the importance, the life of blood, Okay. And, and then Jesus came. And of course, all the religious and ceremonial laws, we don't do them anymore. But as I'll show you next week, we have lots to learn from them. All right? Anyway, let me finish with this. I told you I was going to show you the brilliance and the genius of God. Imagine you birthing a new nation out of nothing and giving, having to give this country every law it would possibly need for every area of its life and function. Imagine how big that law book would be. I mean, all the laws that we have here in Canada for the different areas of life, we've got thousands upon thousands, many, 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 many laws. 
And I hear people complaining about the Old Testament. They say, what's with all the do's and don'ts? 613 different commands. Boy, there's just so many. God's such a legalistic God. No, I want to give you a whole new perspective. He gave them every law they could possibly need for all areas of life in only 613. It's magnificent. It's brilliant. We've got thousands and thousands of laws in our country, and he gave them all of that for those four areas that they would need a brand new blank, blank Slate Nation. He gave it to him in 613. It's amazing. All right? Close your eyes. Bow, bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. And Heavenly Father, I just want to give you all the glory, your brilliance, your justice, your mercy. All of your laws are good. You are good. And Father, we just, we want to fall more and more in love with you. Lord, we don't want to be embarrassed about the things you've written. We are proud to serve you. And I pray, Father, that here at Southland, Lord, you will give us an understanding of your word that we will love to follow you in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.